morning. It's uh, always good to, to be up here. I get to see many of your faces, um, often very attentive, which I appreciate. Uh, also looking forward to next week in which we'll have the youth lead our service, and that will be uh, uh, you know, another opportunity for me just to, to be out there in the congregation and to worship and to sit and to learn and be encouraged. And I'm really excited about what next Sunday is going to look like. Uh, but between now and then, you're stuck with me for the next uh, 30-odd minutes. And we're going to go through some more Proverbs, starting with uh, playing another round of Wise and Otherwise. I still enjoy these. Hopefully you will the same. We're going to look at some Proverbs from around different cultures uh, through the past. For example, there's an old Chinese saying, Step on a hoe and the handle may hit you in the forehead. Right, so this was, they were ahead of their time. This was more than before cartoons even existed. They knew this was a possibility in life. There's an old Scottish saying, he who can't do better must be a monk. I'm like, hey, I don't know, would a modern version of that be pastor? I don't know. Let's not go there. Makes me a bit uncomfortable. There's an old French saying, by candlelight, a goat looks like a lady. <laughs> would have been another good one to pull out around Valentine's Day. Not sure. Those French. There's an old Dutch saying, do you speak English? <laughs> I feel like that might also be a modern-day Dutch saying, but uh, don't know for sure. And an old Kenyan saying, beans come from the place where the beans are, and they win the most obvious award for sayings today. Which is good. I like these things. They can make us laugh, but we're going to go over a topic today that might make you feel more than just a little bit uncomfortable. We're going to talk about money. And I know most of you get here and you're coming to church every week and you're like, just don't, please don't have the pastor talk about money or sex. You know, and today, unfortunately, we're covering one of those topics for you. But we have to, because in order to talk about Proverbs and take a survey of that book, it is keenly interested in wealth. It talks about wealth over and over and over again. And this topic is also one that lets us know of what the intended original audience was. We've established that, that the first group who were, who were reading Proverbs and learning from it were most likely these affluent, elite young men who were being trained into positions of leadership in Solomon's court and in government. And, and, and so this is a book that when it talks about the idea of money, it assumes the reader is wealthy. That's the, that's the position of Proverbs. It's going to talk about wealthy people. It doesn't often talk about poor people. It, it warns away from poverty, saying don't become like that, but it assumes the audience is wealthy, much like last week when we were talking about family and, and spouse relationships, we recognized that it was assumed that the audience would have been young men looking for young godly wives and not the other way around. The same is true in wealth. It assumes wealth. And in this way, we are a great secondary audience for this book because we are all wealthy. You are wealthy. You might say, okay, time out, pastor. <laughs> you should see my bank account. <laughs> I know with all this inflation and stuff going on, I don't feel very wealthy right now. And that's fine. You may not feel that way. But if we look at how wealth is distributed across this globe, then we have to recognize where we fit in that. So I got a bit of a, we have a bit of a, I think a figure here. I'll try to, I'm not sure if you can see it, but put it this way. If you have a net worth, a net worth, how do you, how do you determine your net worth? Okay, you take everything that you own, all the, the money in your bank account and all the equity you've built up in your home and all the, all the investment things, and you take all of that and then you subtract all your liabilities, all your outstanding debt. The, the figure you have left over is your net worth. Pretty simple. 
And if you have a net worth of over $1 million, then you are in the top 1% of people in this whole entire world. And you should also remember to tithe. Okay, sorry, no, it's not that, it's not that type of sermon, I promise. But still. Okay, you say, Pastor, I don't have over a million dollars. Some of you probably do. Your net worth could be a million dollars. But here we go. The next bracket is $100,000. If your net worth is over $100,000. So, for example, if you own, have more than half of your home, if you own more than half and the bank owns the other half in this area, then then you likely have a net worth of over $100,000. Let's put it that way. So this could be many, many of you. You are now in the top 10% of wealthy people on this planet. You are a wealthy person. And even if we drop that down to having a a, a net worth of of only, what is it, only uh, $18,000 or more, you're still in the top 50% of people. The reality is that living in the Western world, we are by default wealthy. And we might not feel like it. We might not live like it. It doesn't look like that when we compare it to other people. But on a global scale, we are people of wealth. And so we need to take what Proverbs says about wealth quite seriously because it pertains to us, pertains to us whether we like it or not. And when we look at what Proverbs teaches, there are some of, of those sayings that, that I would say are descriptive rather than prescriptive. So what do I mean? Well, there's a number of, of different sayings about how wealth will, will give you power and authority over other people and how wealth will get you a lot of friends, <laughs> or people pretending to be your friends. And I I would interpret those sayings as more describing the way that the world works, but not prescribing the way that we should live. And those things are not the goal or the focus of Proverbs or our time together. Instead, we want to look at how the book spends a lot of time unpacking wealth in, in two different areas, two different main parts of the teaching. And that is, how is wealth made and how is wealth used? And that is going to matter to us. And that is prescriptive, how we ought to go about attaining wealth and how we ought to go about using our wealth. And so let's dive into those big questions together. How wealth is made? Well, first, it should come to no surprise, given to what we've seen in Proverbs so far, that wealth is made through hard work. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gains little by little will increase it. Now, we're going to keep that verse on the screen behind me because we need to unpack a few of these words and phrases to gain, I think, the real depth of teaching here. So it says that whoever gathers little by little will increase it. That phrase little by little literally means in Hebrew by hand and can also be translated as by labor or work. So whoever works for it each and every day, puts their hand, to, puts their nose to the grindstone, gets their hands dirty, whoever goes to work and shows up and, and works hard for their wealth, little by little, will increase it. And yes, Proverbs has also taught us a lot about the value of hard work. Look to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> we should never underestimate the value of hard work. Proverbs has already made that connection, and now in the topic of wealth, they're saying that these two ideas are related. In order to gain wealth, hard work is a piece of that puzzle. And it's one of the things that is a controllable factor for us. Often, something that we can do or not do that can lead to this increase or decrease in wealth. When I was a uh, young adult and I was a student and I'd come home uh, for the summer or come home after graduation, 
Uh, my dad had a, a little phrase for me that was super annoying. <laughs> he said, your full-time job is to find a full-time job. I was like, come on, because I needed to find work, but I didn't want to do it that quickly. I mean, I just worked a whole year at school, couldn't have a couple days to kind of just enjoy being at home. He said, no, your full-time job is to find a full-time job. So you're going to update your resume. You're going to look for job listings. You're going to hand in applications. You're going to make follow-up phone calls. I'm like, what? But I'm really glad for that. My dad was saying, if you want to be able to go to school next year, if you want to be able to eventually buy a car, if you want to be able to continue to pursue the goals you have in life, then it starts through the value of hard work. And I'm grateful for that lesson. And it's in line with what Proverbs teaches us, and I'm hoping to pass that on to my kids as well. We need to work hard, but the type of hard work is also important. This is talking about honest labor, not dishonest. So it says here, who wealth gained hastily will dwindle. And hastily can also mean by fraud. So there are actually two warnings in this proverb, both are which warning us against the negative. It says, don't ever be dishonest in any of your business dealings in order to get a leg up. So work hard, but be honest with your labor. Never charge someone more than they need to be charged. Never take advantage of someone's ignorance and, and fleecing them on a deal. Never take any money that's not actually yours to have or to keep. In any of these things, in all of these business dealings, we need to not be cutthroat. We need to be honest in how we relate to one another in our relationships and also in those business dealings. So we need to make sure this is not by fraud, but we also don't want to gain wealth hastily. We need to beware the quick cash bug. Now, I've had to start teaching my kids about what sports gambling is, because as soon as we sit down to watch a Jets game, we're going to have at least 18 sports gambling advertisements or commercials during that time. So, hey, we're going to have some really good, honest conversation about the pros and cons to gambling and gambling on sports. That's reminded me of a time when I was living in, in Brandon. Karen and I were newlyweds, and, and the church we're going to there um, the pastor Dan Pope spoke a little bit on this because there was a referendum in Brandon uh, about whether or not there should be a casino built there at the time. And he said that in his past, he had been part of a community that allowed a casino to come and be built, and he saw some of the many detrimental after effects that it had on the entire community. And he said there is something insidious, negative, that creeps into the mindset personally and collectively. Well, I don't have to work hard. I can just get rich this way. And when we try to remove the value of hard work in attaining wealth, then we are no longer striving for it in the way that God has designed. And that's what this proverb teaches us. And that's also the warnings that we see when it comes to things like gambling. It's not just financially irresponsible. It also gives us this get-rich-quick scheme mindset that can undermine our work ethic and even undermine the way that we relate to one another. We should avoid these things. That's what Proverbs um, tells us in chapter 13, verse 11. So we should work hard, but we should not overwork. There's a warning that comes with this in Proverbs 23, 4, where it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. That word toil is not just a word for hard work. We know that that's valuable. It's a word for overwork, for struggle, for, for this idea of burnout. And so I think we could, we could very faithfully say, do not become a workaholic to get rich. Know enough when to stop. Know enough when to stop. 
This is not to be consumed with your job. This is not to be consumed with the value of hard work or consumed with the goal of wealth that it now hurts you and hurts the people around you. We are meant to, to, to use this wealth and to have it in order to benefit the many relationships around us, not the other way. One of the great lessons that I learned during my time in seminary was to, was to have a sense of self-care. And I'm grateful for that lesson. In order for, for, for me as a pastor to be able to help and serve others, I need to be in a healthy position. So I can't be just consumed with my job. I need to make sure that I eat properly, that I exercise on a regular basis, that I have hobbies and things that I do just for fun. Right? Work hard, yeah, play hard. Set boundaries, enjoy yourself, take time to unwind. We also don't want to be consumed with work and the pursuit of wealth so that we can make sure that we're doing our responsibility to take care of others. So yeah, don't work late. Instead, maybe come home and spend some extra time with your spouse. Ensure that you're there for your kids when they're playing baseball or when they have a dance recital. Make sure that you're able to give yourself enough margin in life to be able to watch your grandkids from time to time and enjoy seeing them grow up. Uh, and babysit your nieces and nephews uh, when, when the time is right. Go out with friends and then just enjoy peer conversation and relationship. All of these things do not take away from hard work. They are part of the biblical definition of hard work. They are part of what we consider when it comes to how wealth is made. But hard work is only a piece of the puzzle. Proverbs also teaches that wealth is made through righteous behavior. It's described this way in Proverbs 15, 6. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. <laughs> now, we need to make sure these don't become guarantees, right? They're not one-for-one one guarantees. Proverbs never work that way. But there is this connection between righteousness and wealth that we can't ignore. It's taught in the book. And I believe righteousness is connected to wealth in two main ways. The first way is doing the right thing what we would call moral righteousness, living as a righteous and wise person. So all these other lessons that we've been learning through the book of Proverbs, if we live this way, if we can put them into practice, then we will push, position ourselves well to enjoy the wealth that God has in store for us. But we need to discard this notion of karma. Again, not a one-for-one -one guarantee. If I do the right thing, God is obligated to give me a blessing. That's not how the world works. That's not how God works, and it's not what Proverbs is teaching. This is teaching that when we do the right thing, we trust that God, on his good time and in his good way, will choose to bless us with a blessing of his choice when he sees fit. Lots of qualifying. But we believe that when we do the right thing and when we live righteously, that God will bless us, and it's not always a guarantee to be financial. Sometimes you will lose something. Sometimes you will gain something greater. God has you. He is supporting you. He's encouraging you. He's cheering you on. And he is blessing you in this quest of living in a righteous way. And sometimes, and I do believe there's a pattern where this can be connected to wealth and financial well-being. A few weeks ago, we had Alvin Barkman come and share how he was um, um, living out this journey of doing the right thing. And he was determined to live by integrity, to do this moral righteousness. And it was going to cost him his job. And he was willing to lose that if need be. But part of the encouragement of his story was that God worked in that situation and, and that he worked to not only allow Alvin to keep his job, but to, to, to get a raise and be more, even more valuable to the company that he had spent decades working with. So yes, sometimes that's the end story. Sometimes you can lose your job, 
because of this righteous living. But regardless of that outcome in that particular situation, God has you and he will support you and bless you. And often that's still connected to our wealth and our financial well-being. So this idea of moral righteousness, doing the right thing, is part of the puzzle. And I do think that we can also see righteousness showing up in a very practical way. And I would say it's doing the, the right thing, not just with your morals, but with your money. So if I were to coin a phrase, and this is just my phrase, not Proverbs' phrase, just Pastor Andrew's phrase, I think we could call it financial righteousness, right? So moral righteousness is doing the right thing with your morals. Financial righteousness is doing the right thing with your money. Because you can work hard and you can make lots and lots of money, but if you aren't wise about it, you can lose it all. I'm a big sports fan, so I have this morbid curiosity about pro athletes who are able to make millions of dollars and squander it all. We have a great example right now uh, in, in hockey player Evander Kane, who was uh, once played for uh, the, the Winnipeg Jets and now plays for the Edmonton Oilers. No further comment on that. And Evander Kane, he's the low-hanging fruit here. Why? Because he's going through a very public bankruptcy trial. So we've got information that I can share about his situation. That can be this warning sign to everyone. So here, here's just a little bit of the story of Evander Kane. Uh, in 2021, sorry, January 2021, Kane filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy in San Jose. The details of the debt came out to $26.8 million total, with $10.2 million coming in assets and $1.5 million in gambling debts. So he filed bankruptcy just three years after he signed a seven-year, $49 million contract extension with the Sharks. And at the time of his filing, Kane had already earned $52.9 million in team pay during his 11-year career. He had earned almost $53 million and still managed to find a way to declare bankruptcy. And why is that? He had no problem making or accruing wealth, but he had a really hard time being smart with it, hanging on to it. And for Cain, it came through gambling problems and an incredibly acrimonious divorce. And I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. My heart hurts for someone like that. It's just, I I hope that he continues to grow as as a person. I'm just saying we can also learn from his story to know that, 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 that what we have and how we use it are directly connected and how important relationships are in this conversation with wealth. We need to be smart with our money. And no matter how much wealth you have, because again, you could say, Pastor, I was at that global distribution. I was at the bottom. You know, I'm 19 years old. <laughs> can, how smart can I really be with my money? I'll say, well, no. This idea of being wise with wealth can come no matter how much you have or how little you have. And I want to give you five ways to be wise with wealth. And these are, again, just very practical applications of what I believe Proverbs is talking about. These five points come from Ramsey Solutions which is uh, Dave Ramsey's corporation. If you've heard of him, he has a lot of good things to say about this financial righteousness, doing the right thing with your money. Number one, if you want to do the right thing, make a budget and stick to it. It doesn't matter how much money you have. When Karen and I were newlyweds, we were living off love. Our entertainment budget for going out and doing things for the entire month was $40 when we were first married. I remember wanting to go watch a, a, born, a born movie, The Born Identity. We planned, we planned to go three weeks in advance. We, we couldn't go anywhere else for three weeks so that we could go watch this movie. Right? That, was, that was where we started. But it helped us continue to have a leg up to move forward. It was totally worth it. Number two, live on less than you make and save. Save. 
Just if at all possible, put even a little bit of money in a savings account each and every month. Again, it doesn't have to be a huge number, but if you can learn to live within your means and save, it will help you now and in the future and in the future, future, future. Number three, invest and build wealth. See, this is where I all of a sudden say, time out, Mr. Ramsey. <laughs> I'm with you on the budgeting thing. I'm on the saving thing. And I love to see that savings account have a good, healthy amount in it. But what God's been teaching me recently is to be willing to take some of that and to invest it. Now, I'm not, I didn't join Quest Trade. I'm not trying to do this all on my own. I went, and, and so, I went to meet with someone that I trust, and I got professional advice but, but I'm learning how to be better at allowing that money to work for me so that in the future when I'm looking at retiring, that can become a greater possibility. It's, it's a bit risky for someone who's conservative like me, but it can be a valuable thing to do. Number four, perhaps the most important thing, avoid unnecessary debt. Avoid unnecessary debt. And this is where uh, the world around us uh, is using debt like candy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like, well, you don't have to really have the money. You just have to be able to make the payments on that. And that can handcuff you financially. This is another piece of advice I got from my father. I'm going to quote him at least two different times today. He said, there are only two types of debt that work for you. And that is a mortgage on a house and student loans for an education. A house is an appreciating asset where you can build equity and and, and student loans can give you an education which will allow you to have a career that can help you with financial security in the future. All other debts, all other debts are just interest payments. They don't actively work for you. So consider what you're making payments on with your debt. And lastly, and also very important, we'll dig into this more in a bit, be a generous steward. In order to have this financial righteousness, to do the things with your finances that God wants you to do, generosity is a part of that. We'll dig into that a bit deeper. But for now, those five points, I think, are really practical ways in which no matter how much you have, you can do the right thing with your money. So wealth is made through hard work. It's made through this righteous behavior, doing the right thing, morally doing the right thing with your money. It's also made through divine grace. And this is an incredibly important piece. Proverbs 10.22 gives us this teaching. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Our hard work matters, but our wealth is not just worked for. It is not just earned. It's not just achieved. It's not just deserved. So much of what we have, in fact, I would argue all of what we have is really given to us freely by our Heavenly Father. And we can err on either side of this. If you're saying, yeah, pastor, you talk to my kids. Uh, They don't know the value of hard work. If you just work hard, you'll get everything you need. That's not what the Bible teaches. And you might be on the other side and be like, you know what? I don't think we need to work for anything. God just cares for me. It doesn't matter what I do. That is not what the Bible teaches. We live in the middle where Proverbs and, and the rest of Scripture says, work hard. It's valuable. It's the way God has designed you. And by the way, God is a heavenly Father that loves you and gives good gifts and will bless you freely above and beyond what you deserve. Not just worked for, but given. And this opens us up to the idea of stewardship, where what we have is God's, and we are called to care for it well. If everything that we have, we believe we have worked for and earned and deserve, then we can hang on to it very tightly. But if we understand and trust that God has given it to us, and not just for us, but to steward and take care of it for the sake of others, then we approach our idea of finances and wealth quite differently. And all of this shows God's heart towards his children. 
we have a heavenly Father who loves to give us good gifts. And our money and our finances and our wealth is part of that. And today, you don't feel wealthy. If you're not wealthy, if you're struggling to get by, this does not mean that you haven't worked hard enough. This does not mean that you have somehow lost God's favor. It means that God's gifts do not always come in the form of financial success. They are far greater. God cares for you. He is looking after you. And he will bless you. And it will be in a way that you can't deny as being the best way possible. That is how wealth is made. The second part of our question is now, how is wealth used? Well, Proverbs continues to say that wealth can be used for family security. This idea of security is still part of it. Uh, We see this uh, taught in Proverbs 10.15. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wealth is his strong city. Hard work and careful stewardship can provide financial security. And we see this in Proverbs. Not, not only is Proverbs not a guarantee. I mean, it's not a one-for-one one guarantee. You do the right thing, God is obligated to give you this blessing. No, it's not how it works. We also see how these blessings are often natural outcomes or consequences of living in a wise and righteous way. And so if you live with hard work and careful stewardship in mind, then financial security will be a natural outcome or consequence of living that way. And that is something to be enjoyed. So if you're able to budget and save, then you will have the opportunity to be able to um, weather the storm of the unforeseen um, circumstances that come in the future because you have something set aside for a rainy day. And if you are able to budget and save, it makes it possible to set aside for retirement where you can invest or, or, or provide for your children's education so that they have opportunities in post-secondary uh, education in their future. These are natural outcomes of living a certain way with your wealth. And they should also make striving to be a good steward wonderful motivation. It doesn't only help you now, it helps you in the future. It helps your family. It helps look after those that you love. But there is another inherent danger in this. Good financial stewardship can obviously lead to security, but that can also lead us to trusting in our finances more than trusting in the Lord. Another thing that Proverbs warns against in chapter 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in his riches will fail or fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Now, financial security is real, but it is temporary and it is fleeting and it helps us only in this life alone. And if we are in a place where we are just so incredibly financially comfortable and secure, it can unwittingly just drip away and and chip away at our trust in God. And this is something that I am working through because, again, I've learned that I approach money. uh, Money is not to be spent. Money is to be saved so that I can feel secure. That is how I deal or view finances. That's my default position. And so when things are going well, I look at my old air conditioner in the backyard. Every summer, I, I, I take the cover off the, off the air conditioner. I'm like, Lord, have mercy. I hope we get through one more summer. And then at the end of the day, I can put my head down on my pillow and be like, you know what? Even if this thing goes, I know that we have something saved up where we'll be able to, we'll be able to get through that. Sometimes I wonder, what would happen if that number goes down and it goes down and it goes down? Because at, when I put my head on my pillow, when I find that peace from worry and anxiety, it should not come from a number in my bank account. That is a role that God alone wants to fulfill. 
And often, because we are wealthy, because we are such a good secondary audience for this teaching in Proverbs, the wealthy are the most at risk for trusting in riches. Obviously, if, if you're scraping by, if, if you feel you're at rock bottom in many different ways, that can be a place where you can trust in God with reckless abandon. So don't allow the security that you are enjoying in your life to diminish your trust in God. It's in Him, in Him alone, that we trust. And He and He alone will provide for us, no matter what numbers say to you. But we can enjoy this security. Just enjoy it, trusting in God. Wealth is also used for generosity, or the way that I like to put it, rampant generosity. We need to be known as people who are generous. Listen to how strongly it's worded in Proverbs 14.21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Blessed is he who is generous to the poor. If it is true that we are the top 10% of wealthy people on this globe, then we need to be in the top 10% of most generous people in this world as well. Generosity is a must. It's a must-have. It is, it is at the core of what the Bible teaches about health. And so if we have, or health and wealth. <laughs> so we have this health and wealth idea that we, we do the right thing, God blesses us, we enjoy these blessings, then all it, it becomes is self-serving. And that's not the biblical understanding. We need to be generous people. We need to be those who look out to the least of these. And all of this is in accordance with Jesus' own teaching. I'd like to read from you Matthew 25, verses 35 and following where Jesus is telling his, telling his followers this. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. We need to have our eyes open to the needs around us. What are the needs around you? Who are those that are going without? And what do you have in all that God has given you and all that you've worked for? What do you have that can fill that need? These are the questions that generous people ask. I've been a part of the local ministerial here for the last three years. And uh, at our most recent meeting, we went and we actually met at Steinbeck Community Outreach. And we had a tour of the facility and we met a few of the people that come and frequent there. And then we had a good conversation about how we as churches can continue to help places like SCO fill the needs of our community. Uh, and we're really talking about what would it look like to have a warming shelter here in Steinbeck during the winter for those who are really without any shelter at all. So what are the needs around us? And how can we fill those needs? And how can we work together to fill those needs? And it's not just Steinbeck Community Outreach. There's Soups On and Southeast Helping Hands. And, and it's not just on this big organizational level. There are people in your life that are in great and desperate and dire need of your generosity. And some people who don't even need it, but would just love to be encouraged by you and the generous spirit that you can show to them. How can we fill these needs? We need to be aware of them, then we need to know how we can fill them. And then we can take great comfort in the teaching that generous giving leads to generous gifts from God. Proverbs also talks about this in chapter 11, verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, 
and one who waters himself will himself be watered. Now, the fact that we get a blessing when we bless others should not be our primary motivation for being generous people. That still becomes a way in which this teaching and understanding of wealth is self-centered. But God shows throughout his word that he enjoys blessing people as they bless others. And in fact, I think we can really understand this the other way around. It's not so much that when we bless people, we appease God and he wants to bless us. I believe that in Christ, we are incredibly blessed people. And as God has chosen to bless us, we just pour out into the people around us. That's the way it happens. God is generous to us. He has given us life. He has given us love. He has given us wealth. And we need to pour out to other people. The the metaphor here is one of an artesian well. He who waters will himself be watered. And it's like, like we have this living water. Truly, we have living water that's welling up in our soul and in our life. And then we can just pour that out to water other people so that they can grow and they can flourish and they can experience the life and the love and the eternal wealth found in Christ alone. What God has given to us needs to pour back out of us. And in spirit, and in time, in giving dignity, in building relationships, of service, and in being generous with our wealth. Lastly, and to drive this point home, very connected, wealth is used for glorifying God. The author of Proverbs puts it home this way in 1431. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults the poor man. No, no, no. He insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. What did Jesus say? What you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. So why have we received these blessings? Why do we work so hard? Why is it so important to be generous to the needs around us? Because what we do for the least of these, we do for God. This is our primary motivation. This is why we strive after wealth. This is why we see the needs and fill the needs around us. Because all of that that we do, we do for the Lord. And when we do these things for God, we do them for for eternal kingdom purposes. So each and every way that we choose to attain and steward our wealth needs to have an eye on kingdom priorities. You can't take it with you when you go. It can only give you security for a time. It will eventually let you down. But the way that you use your money, when it's meant to be earmarked, to be bookmarked, to be invested in the kingdom of God, that can have an impact for later. Which is why I do believe it's important to be generous to your church and to be generous to uh, sponsoring a child and to be generous to other organizations that have the same eternal priorities that you have. Because these are the best ways that we can invest in something that matters more than dollars and cents. In people, here and now, and in people's souls forevermore. And this brings our own personal relationship with money into focus. One last warning in Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Your money can't save you. You can't take it with you when you go. So the question remains, how can you use it now that will make an impact forever? We can summarize it with our word to the wise this week. Work hard to use the blessings of God to bless others in a way that matters for eternity. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you, and I think we have to begin just by acknowledging just the great and many gifts that you have given us. Father, we just we thank you for the fact that we get to live in this country. We, fa- we thank you for the fact that we can meet here and worship freely. We thank you for the homes we live in, uh, for, the, for the education our kids have, uh, for, for the good food we're able to eat, for the futures that we all are able to be excited by. And God, we thank you first and foremost and always for the life that we have in you through your son, Jesus Christ. God, may we never take these things for granted. And may we not be consumed by these blessings, whether it's, it's, whether it's in spirit or in finances. May we just enjoy these blessings and enjoy them so much that we can't help but share them with others. As we live this way, you filling us and us filling others through that. God, I pray that you would just allow all of these offerings to have an impact forever. And may you be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen.